Hey, this is Eric Leewald. And this is Julia Leewald. And you're listening to Spoiler Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on SpoilerVerse.com. If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Right, y'all you hear the horns that means it's time for another episode of spoiler country um today is a special one we have eric and julia leewald they were integral parts of the x-men animated series in the 90s uh if it wasn't for these two superhero movies probably would not have gotten enough traction to get started so uh you can thank them for the x-men you can thank them for marvel you could thank them for the crappy dc movies sorry robert uh john <laughs> how you doing buddy i'm doing good and dude you're not kenrick what the, who are, what the hell uh well you know ken kenrick's got a lot on his plate right now and uh i'm just doing my best to check in uh to to chip in i'm just sitting here going like that's not kenrick talking that's casey that's casey to yeah, monster yeah. allen <laughs> <laughs> it's me. It's me, man. It is. Yeah, man. This is this is a cool one. I mean, they, they didn't they, they sent you a book for this one, right? They did, and they did. Uh, I opened up the box. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. Right. I gasped. <laughs> That's a beautiful book, man. It is a beautiful book. It uh, very well done. Um, whoever designed that book needs an award it was fantastic <laughs> and uh it's I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now because it's right by my recording rig um so much awesome stuff in that book we talk about it uh, we talk about it a lot actually and uh we also get into the origin of them as a um as a couple and as writing partners um they're fascinating uh group of people and i was very fortunate to get a chance to talk to them i was actually jealous i wanted to be on this one now i actually selfishly i wanted the book for myself too but it got sent to you and i was like well he got the book he can do the interview uh but this is a fun one because i mean if you were if you grew up in the um the 90s watching cartoons you definitely watched the, the this cartoon and x-men cartoon is so iconic and great and this is this is a lot of fun i was um sitting in the floor reading this book uh and my wife was cracking up at me because it's so big right she said you look like a little boy (laughs) 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 but uh it's such an awesome book it's massive and uh pretty much anything you want to know about uh the writing and the creation of the anime series is in that book and so many great illustrations i can't believe all the things that they were able to save uh it's fascinating really is that's 
really awesome. Well, what do you say we just get into it and listen to the interview now? Yeah, you guys enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, well, let me start this by telling a little bit of a backstory. When I was a little kid, we didn't have a ton of money. My comic consumption was few and far between. I'd read them on the spinner rack and and then I'd feel guilty and you know put them back before we left. We did have a VCR. It was a gift from an uncle. And when X-Men, the animated series debuted, I was grounded for recording over my sister's gymnastics video with the first episode of the show. And I ended up recording the entire season. And that video got played so many times that it got worn down. And just because I would pass it around with my friends, I'm talking tonight to two people that not only introduced a ton of people to the X-Men, but two people that introduced people to comics as a whole. I'm talking, of course, to Julia and Eric Leewald. Julia and Eric, how, how are you doing? <laughs> we're we're oh, doing great, Casey. Thanks for asking. That was a fantastic story. Sorry about your sister's VHS tape. That's who I was. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, was, she, she was fairly pissed, but <laughs> it worked out in the end. <laughs> so, yeah. So you both, you, you met in, a, in the animation world. And, and I think that's pretty fascinating in and of itself. How, how did that happen? What, can, can you give us a meet cute? Sure. <laughs> I was born, well, okay. The, the long short story is I was born in Wisconsin, raised in Texas. So I had family in both places. And graduating college, a friend said, you know, they pay people to ride out in Los Angeles. You should go to Hollywood. It's like, wait, what? They do that? You can, you can move? You can, you can actually go from point A to point B? So I determined to get out to Los Angeles and figure out how to crack into the writing game. Took a long time. I'm just saying that to anybody else who's interested. Just, hey, you got to keep your head down. Keep trying. My very first paying job was for the Disney afternoon, which included the Chippendales Rescue Rangers show, my very first one, and, and all the other wonderful stuff they were putting out. And the guy in the office next to me was, was Eric. Was me. <laughs> actually, actually, I hired there at Disney about six months before. I'd, I'd had a few years in the business working in Hanna-Barbera, other places. I'd come out here from Tennessee, same kind of deal. You know, fell in love with the movies in college and and programmed them at UT and and with a couple of three buddies that did that, we all decided. Well, we made a little short, cheap movie there, got it done, came out to Hollywood, and then realized, you know, get in line with the other hundred thousand people that want to be in movie business. But yeah, came out here, got into animation. Just you know, it's a random thing. A, a neighbor said Hanna Barbera is hiring, and I went over and. Gave him a script that another UT buddy and I had written, and got her foot in the door that way. And and really from that that moment, from that getting that opportunity, was was busy pretty much 15, 20 years straight in the business. As Julia said, it took a long time to get to that little door opening. It took years to get there, but once once we got there, we all you know worked hard and flourished. And I actually left Disney for a five-month leave of absence because a buddy of mine from Mississippi was making a movie, and I promised him I'd help him, and they were nice enough to let me take five months off. So suddenly, Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers was shorter writer, 
And there's this girl from Texas that had been banging at their door for six or seven months. Just every week they'd let you come in and do a, uh, you could pitch to them every Friday, whether you had an agent or not. And I was, <laughs> oh, God darn it. I was going to do so it. We pitched, so she got this call saying, well, you know, uh, we liked your last outline uh, or you like your last premise. We just lost a writer. Do you want to come in and take over his desk? So she came into Disney while I was gone and took over my desk. I came back and you got the office next door. Yeah. got the office next door and we, we dated for a couple months and she was kind of nervous about that because she didn't want, you know, office romance to ruin her best job she ever had. It was my dream job. I didn't want to screw it up. And I just said, what, <laughs> what are you worried about? This, I was very casual about the whole thing, but so. <laughs> and we, we were both writers. It was completely co-worker. There was yeah. no weird. Yeah, she wasn't working stuff. for me. Or I yeah. for, so, but we each were there a little over three years mm -hmm. and they decided they had a huge staff, about a hundred, this is just TV animation, about a hundred writers and artists and then they figured out well they could save money by just letting us all go and hiring us freelance when they needed us so we all got let go and that actually was a good thing we learned basically what all we felt we could learn at disney and then we started getting jobs from other people like fox and did a year of beetlejuice and then that is what if i hadn't been let go i wouldn't have done the beetlejuice uh year and the people that had hired me for Beetlejuice and Fox, Margaret Lesh and Sydney Iwater, were the ones that hired me a year after that to come and do X-Men. And if, again, if we hadn't been let go from Disney, we wouldn't have had the opportunity to do X-Men. That is, that's such a cool story. And just how one opportunity leads to another and when one door closes, another opens. It's, it's, it's really kind of inspiring. Julia, how was his pickup game? Was he... <laughs> what was his line? Oh, no. You know, the, I'll, I'll say this. He had, he had the, the huge advantage of, of doing the thing I wanted to do and that I found myself getting the opportunity to do, which was be a writer in TV, whether it was animation or for whatever. And, oh, oh, I'll, I'll tell a story on him, though. I <laughs> We, we, we literally met in passing in the hallway because we remembered bumping into each other when he was leaving and, and I was coming in to, to take over a desk. And this was a few years ago and computers were really new. So they, I just literally got his desk with his computer on it or the one he was working on. And this is on him, but he left his tax returns there on there. And I am not a computer person. <laughs> But I stumbled upon his file there, and it's like, well, he's making grown-up money. Well, that's not bad, you know, because he was working as a writer and for Disney. Like, so yeah, his pickup game was basically um, was, was for forgetting. I left all my stuff on my computer for her to wade for her to wade through. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that's awesome. So <laughs> you you both ended up on on the X Men team. How, how did that come about? Well, that that was. It, it, was, it was very exciting at the time because we had a feeling that this show meant an awful lot to an awful lot of people. But it was literally, we got, I got the call the night before. And just to explain the roles in all this, Eric and I are both in, on the writing side of things. We are not artists. Don't do anything. Don't, don't do Can't that draw. at all. But as far as telling the stories or crafting 
the worlds for the telling of stories. That's that's kind of where what we do. Right, and 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 the the people at, at Fox, wonderful people, Margaret Lesh, who is the whole reason X Men got on TV. Yep. She she loved she loved the comic book, thought it'd make a great show. No one believed her in Hollywood. They all turned her away. For Ten years she tried to get it on the air, couldn't get it on the air. So anyway, so now she's got hired as the president of this little new Fox network that hadn't existed two years earlier. And she and her right-hand man or henchman <laughs> from Wisconsin and Sydney, I want her. They, I said, I worked for a year for them on Beetlejuice. I and a couple of other UT buddies that, that write with me. And we, they evidently liked that tone for X-Men. And so I got a call literally on a Sunday night saying, Oh, by the way, we told you we you were going to have you maybe work on another show, which was actually the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes for for this coming season. To be the showrunner, to be yeah, the, to, the, to be the, the story person, editor, to be the, the the person in charge of the scripts and kind of the overall supervisor of the development. And he said, "Well, that was that was a lie. We were trying to keep you know keep this under wraps, but we're doing a show with Marvel, the X Men, and everybody's going to be meeting tomorrow morning." up at Haim Spahn's building, and, you know, Stan Lee's going to be there and half a dozen people from Marvel, New York. And, you know, we're going to have 25 folks there, and, and we're going to hire you to be the one to develop this TV show for, for animation. And I look over to Julian Whisper, X-Men's a comic book, right? Because <laughs> it was not a book I had read. And so I just kind of smiled. So, okay, fine, Sydney. She said, I'm the right tool for the job. And I went there for a three-hour meeting the next day. And I just nodded and smiled and kept my mouth shut. The reminder here that back, this is 1992. <clears throat> no was, internet, no Googling. You couldn't, there weren't 24-hour resources to go grab you know, graphic novels or any kind of compilations. There was nothing. That's what Sunday night. I couldn't even go to a comic book store to yeah. check the stuff That's out. Wild. But so, yeah, I... I I stonewalled my way through that first meeting, and luckily there were some really experienced, wonderful artists there that that I would be be my colleagues on the thing, Will Minio and Larry Houston, who knew the X Men backwards and forwards, knew all thirty years of the comics, and had exactly the same idea that I had for what the show needed to be, which was a much more serious adult. I mean, the comics at the time were, were ferociously intense. On all the characters, you know, like in their 30s, it wasn't a little kid's comic book. It was a very intense, adult, dramatic comic book. So we, you know, I, I asked them, well, you want to do it this way, you know, to Sydney and Margaret. said, yeah, we want to respect the comics. And luckily, we all felt the same way. There were a number of folks uh, that didn't get that because all the you know, the superhero attempts at comics previous 30 years have been kind of little kiddie things and very comic booky. And even some of the suggestions in that first meeting were, well, we could make this kind of like Scooby-Doo, you know, where you'd have Professor X and, and Cerebro in a band going around finding uh, mutants. And luckily, the two artists and I very much agreed among each other. No, we need to treat this like dramatic movies, like serious hour dramas for primetime television. We need to respect these adults. We need to respect these stories because of the intensity of the actual comic book stories. We can't dumb this thing down. And so the first, the first year, there was about seven or eight months of a lot of defending that, keeping, say, 
I don't know, but maybe some of the folks involved from wanting us to do it, you know, kind of funnier or younger or, 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 or in a different way. And we all basically just dug our feet in and said, no, we're going to live or die on what we think the show should be. And thank goodness, you know, came out and it was a big hit. And, you know, the kids liked it, even though we'd made it that adult. And then there was no more fighting. You know, the next four years were easy <laughs> in terms of the politics. But that first year was pretty much one nonstop, you know, defending what we hoped the show would be uh, from keeping it from being changed to something very different. Now, you yeah. think Hollywood might be like all glamorous and, you know, big, tall office buildings and studios and stuff. But Eric, when you got the, the, the orders that Monday to craft this show, it turned your, you and Mark. Mark Edens, who was kind of tapped as your head writer on this, it was the two of you around our dining room table, yeah. you know, just talking it out and pitching stories. And I, and I was there, so yeah. I got to pitch too. Well, a lot, a lot of sweet tea and, and Diet Coke. And just, yeah, it was, it was one of these things where we were really lucky. They were behind schedule. We had seven months for what should have taken a year. And, and so we just, they just told us, look, write this thing up fast. Marvel at the time was a very small place. They were headed towards bankruptcy in 1996. Just a comic book place, didn't have any of the you know, media that they have today. And so basically they were just thrilled that they were getting some money off of Fox for doing the show and hoped we wouldn't screw it up. They didn't have final say, Fox did. So in effect, our boss was the one deciding what the show should be. If, if Marvel had wanted a different show, that they would, we said, sorry, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this. Luckily, the guy that was our overseer for Marvel, wonderful man named Bob Harris, he was running all the, the X-Men books at the time. There were three or four series of X-Men books going at the same time. They're very popular in the comic book world. And he agreed with us about how serious we needed to be with the stories. So the notes we got from him were very encouraging. And we'd go to him because, you know, we'd have 100 questions about if something fit with the X-Men universe or not, or fit with a particular character or not. And we used, you know, we depended on him to keep that in line while we told the most dramatic stories, we TV stories we could, being new people, new people to the X-Men world. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bob Harris, I, I, was, I was hoping to get to that because he, he seemed to have really kind of helped, helped you guys out in terms of direction. And I'm assuming he was a, a good guy to work with. Loesch was, was a really big advocate for you guys with the network too, correct? It well, wouldn't have happened without her. It well, would not have happened without her. Yeah. And she was pretty high up. I remember she was president of Fox Kids Television, which means she only had one or two people above her in the whole place. But just to back it up a little bit, prior to becoming being tapped to be president of Fox Kids Network, she was working for Marvel. And that's when uh, she really? kind of wet, met Will Minio and Larry Houston yep. and that whole bunch of people who ended up working on what became X-Men, the animated series. Right. But that was the time when she couldn't give the show away. She was trying her darndest, yeah. couldn't get a buyer. Yeah, that was the 80s. And, and Marvel had a production company out here that would try to produce. They thought, oh, they produced Marvel TV shows, but nobody would buy them. So they... Margaret was such a good executive. She got all sorts of other things like Transformers and and uh, Muppet Babies and some super hit shows that, that Marvel Studios produced. Yeah, that she, as head of this little production company, Marvel Studios production company, that she 
oversaw, but as she said, she just, she'd go to the ABC, NBC, CBS, and they'd roll their eyes and say, oh, nobody wants to see a uh, show based on comic books. That's all kind of interior monologues and, and you know, there's some pimply people down in their basements that read those things. We need, we need five times that. You know, that's a million people. We need three or four million people, even if it's a popular comic book. That's not we, nearly enough. Not nearly enough for a successful television show. So don't, Margaret, stop talking to us about this. But once once she got there, it, it was is basically it's her decision what got on the air for the ten half hours for Saturday morning. And but you know she had to report to people above her, and they had to believe in her. And they looked at X Men and they said, "Oh, I don't get this. This is all dark and dramatic, and you're trying to sell this to kids. We don't. We don't get this, Margaret." And she pushed and pushed and took her about six months. But finally, her boss looked at her and said, are you willing to risk your career, you know, your job here on this, this X-Men thing? She said, absolutely. I think it's going to be the best kid show on television. And so she literally put her, you know, mortgaged her future to get them to put the money up to make the show. Yeah, if the ratings had not been there, if it had crashed and burned in those first 13 episodes, she would she would have been gone. None of us were hired past one season. It was <laughs> just, uh, we were all, all, all the creative people were let go as soon as we were done writing and drawing. And then we had to wait a couple months till the show, the animation was done and we could see if people liked it or not. And and then it was this huge hit where but, half the country half the watched it every Saturday and half the world you know got to watch it eventually but at the time there was you know there were like two people that believed it was going to be a hit and margaret was one of them yeah i was wanting to ask like there, there were a ton of setbacks on uh, the way to episode one uh-huh. how confident were you in the show and how surprised were you by its eventual success and and when when that success came did did you know you were in it? Like, how did you know? Yeah, you're right. But this back then, there were there were no computers the way they are now. There was no internet the way it is now, and and we were not in an office anywhere on a studio lot or anything. We were just working out of a home office, each of us. Yeah, you know? Julie, you want to tell them about about the the, mail, oh, the uh, fan mail? <laughs> the, the, this is when we figured out it was it was going to be a hit. So Fox Kids Studios had had its own office buildings here in Los Angeles. And also a reminder, you had ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then Fox and Fox Kids came in in late 89, 88 to try and sort of challenge the big three. Yeah, and they, was, they weren't a big company at the time. They were a bit, yeah, correct. They were small, yeah. So they were, I'm just going to, they were scrappy. You know, everyone at Fox Kids, you know, was like a, was, 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 was a, was a fighter, you know, was going to do what it took to make Fox. And see. try to get attention for, for their, their new network. And Eric, you saying that you worked on Beetlejuice. Yeah. The cat, the reminder is it had previously been on, was it ABC? It was on ABC, it ABC is, tired of it. And Margaret was able to snatch it up. And so Margaret brought it back to, brought it to Fox Kids with the edict to make it sort of edgier and quirkier. Yeah. You know, everything that was on Fox Kids was was to try and draw eyeballs to it. Yeah. So my story is that occasionally I would need to go into the studios as, you know, as the, <laughs> you couldn't send a computer on, you couldn't send a script on your computer. You physically had to drive a disc to somebody or, you know, anyway, I found myself at Fox Kids studio one day and I was talking with a gal named Charlotte Fullerton, who is an Emmy nominated animation writer 
in her own right, but at the time was also working for Fox Kids. And I, and I don't know if you remember, Casey, but there was a thing called the Fox Kids Club. Which, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. She, she was also working on Fox Kids Club at the time, among her other duties. And I just asked her, you know, are you getting any feedback of, you know, about X-Men? We've heard the ratings are good, but you know, we don't know. You know, we're, you, we're just writing in our office at home. We, we, get no, we get no feedback from anybody. At all. And she, That's she so said, odd. She said, well, tell you what, let me show you something. So she took me into the hallway. And you know those, those milky white cartons that you see for the uh, U.S. Postal Service that are full of mail? Buckets. Yeah, the, like you're seeing them now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There was, right in the hallway, across from the door, there was a stack of them all the way up to the ceiling. <laughs> and then a stack of them all the way down that side of the building that side of the wall and then another side, the whole other side of the hallway on the other side, the whole thing was lined with these containers up to the ceiling, both sides all the way down. And she said, every postcard and every letter in those, in these boxes, it's kids writing in about X-Men. It's the first time it was ever visualized to me in such a profound and meaningful way. Because kids had to get a stamp, they had to get yeah, a yeah. pen. You know, this isn't you know, this is this is not Gmail. You know, this this took some effort. But all those kids, and to see it like that, I was like, my God, X Men has really touched a nerve in a way that I had not imagined. That blows me away that y'all are so kind of in a <laughs> vacuum in regards yep. to how the show was doing. It is is so weird thinking back to pre digital, pre internet. And uh, yeah, yep, yeah. But that was that was for me. That was kind of the a, a, a wonderful eye opener. But that again tells you, that, you know, how at the time there there was not a way of communicating that casually to to any of us who were working on the show at the time. So w- one thing about the show that that consistently surprises me is how faithful you guys were to the comics to the to the original source material. Was there a particular run that you used as a guide or a, a storyline that you wanted to use? But, but Well, if you look at it, it it's interesting because the, the, there was so much rich history up until the, you know, the animated series got, you know, got going in the 90s. It started, what, 1963? And, and I think it's, it's a real testament to, to, the, to the writers and the artists for treating the material with respect but there weren't that many direct adaptations. Yeah. You know, people, people think, my God, that's exactly how Wolverine would do something. But, but there isn't a comic book that, in which he did that thing. <laughs> yeah, it was odd. We, since the, the Mark and Michael Edens, who were my, my two main writers, had a hand in basically half the, half the stories. Again, friends, friends from UT and I, none of us were big fans. Some of the writers pitching stories were, and they, they would have favorite issues that they would try to pitch but we went into it since we didn't know the books and we were given a pretty free hand by marvel they just said be you know through the spirit of it come up with you know your best stories so we were just thinking of what would be the best wolverine story we can imagine and then once we got a kernel of it or the best beast story we can imagine then we would look through the references materials we had and populate it with characters from the Marvel unit from the X-Men universe. It wasn't the reverse. It wasn't, we started the comic books and then we uh, massaged them to be TV friendly. We'd start with a TV story that starred these X people. And then when we, if we needed a villain, if we needed a family member, if we needed 
an ally for somebody for a scene, as opposed to making them up out of whole cloth, which we you know easily could do. Our first choice would we go through this thing called the Marvel Universe book. It's huge, and it had every character with all their relationships and all their powers and all their histories, and we would use people that from their world to populate the stories. So that that made it that was a strange thing. So it wasn't it wasn't like say doing a, a Sherlock Holmes series and just adopting each of the stories. It was looking at it and saying, well, okay, you've got Sherlock Holmes and Watson, you've got a couple other recurring people. What are the coolest stories you can think up? You know, what you know, Watson has a boyfriend. I mean, you know, whatever it is, you know, we thought of that first and then we went back and marvelized, you know, marvelized it. Uh, once we came up with the stories. If you look at the first two seasons, the only one that was a direct adaptation was Days of Future Past. And I wrote part one of that one, did. the two-parter. And even that, we had to move that around a bit because you know, we had different we had different people. <laughs> Major change. In the oh, yeah. Yeah, so. And we didn't know if Marvel was going to approve. It was called Future Tense. Yeah. Yeah, before we got so, trouble. But then, of course, once it, was, once it was successful, we talked to Marvel more at length, and they said, well, there's... A, half dozen things that we think you really ought to do. And the first two are the two Phoenix stories. So those were very much focused, conscious efforts to make a faithful adaptation of those, of those stories from the books. But the vast majority of the stories were, you know, a writer or I would come up with a kernel or something like, you know, Beast Falls in Love, like Julie came up with for, for Beauty and the Beast. That was then written by Stephanie Matheson yeah. and did such a good um, job. Then we would, okay, we put the Friends of Humanity in it. We put this person, that person to flesh out the story. But the kernel of the story came from Beast's character. The same thing with not Nightcrawler. Okay, we've got to use Nightcrawler. What is it about him that's special? Well, it's because he's a person of faith, very conspicuous person of faith in this world where he's the only one like that. Well, we got to address that, which was really a tough thing to get okay, by the way. <laughs> And I can so, imagine, for especially for a kid's show, that's, right. that's yeah. fantastic. So we built that story. The question we asked ourselves wasn't, let's look through 30 Nightcrawler episodes to see which one issues, see which one we like best. It was, okay, this is who Nightcrawler is. How do we, who among our leads, because we wanted to keep going back to our core group of people, which is, I think, really important in TV to constantly focus the story on your lead characters. Who among our leads would be most bothered, affected, challenged by bumping into somebody who was a person of really explicit Christian faith, and it was Wolverine. You know, Nightcrawler wouldn't have made Jubilee have, you know, a deep, dark struggle in her soul because, you know, she hadn't been through 90 years of stuff like Wolverine had. Yeah. So that's how we built the story. We start with the character, and it's where we, okay, let's, we want this to, to explore Nightcrawler, and then we pick people around X Men around him that best reveal his character, is, is and and reveal their character. So that's that's how we picked them. And the the big spectacle and the fights and the the, the superpowers, all that stuff was great fun. But that's kind of secondary. It's kind of like the shootouts in westerns. You got to have them, but that's not what the stories are about. Y'all, y'all did such an amazing job of distilling those characters to their essences, especially for for a different medium altogether. It, it really is a great example of of how to transfer 
these these characters and stories to to a different medium and make it work. Was there anyone that was kind of key in in helping you to come to those decisions with the with the characters? I think, Eric, for you, it was initially choosing who the team would be. Because, again, X-Men already had such a rich history. There were 29 different ones in the first 30 years. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So it came down to picking the And, again, in a show like this, and you mentioned it, Eric, the servicing of each character. You know, you... It, there are a lot of characters in the X-Men team. What did we decide? Is it nine if you count yeah, Xavier? Or ten if you count Xavier and more when he, right. when he wasn't dead. And then uh, yeah, trying to come up with a rock solid <laughs> story for every one of them and, and, and not forgetting about them when yeah. someone else is being you know, focused yeah, on. Yeah, we wanted we wanted them to really complement each other so that they'd draw each other out. I mean, as we la- you know, we were laughing with some of the people that do the X-Men better, you know, we could have had Wolverine and Cable and Colossus and Thunderbird and Bishop, have, and Bishop, we could have had you know seven gruff guys and and Jubilee, you know that that that's that would have been one way to go with the with the show, and that would have been boring as hell. We wouldn't have known, you know, who to give what dialogue to because they'd all be growling at each other for twenty. Yeah. Minutes. <laughs> so that was that was I think the 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 key creative decisions when Mark and I, we were given four or five folks that they really felt needed to be in the team that we agreed to, but they, and it was, it was uh, Gambit and Gene and, and Scott and Xavier and Jubilee and, I, and Rogue. I think that's, that's, and actually they said, Oh, you could have Xavier in the background. You know, I didn't see him that much, but he was real. He kind of asserted himself because he's so much the heart and soul and the idea behind the X-Men and Beast was so different. And he's like Spock in Star Trek. Beast was such a different character. We found all of our writers found ourselves writing him into stories when, you, when we when we hadn't planned to. If you go back and watch the first season, uh, it, you realize in the first two episodes he he's arrested and in jail for the whole first season, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but his point is he is there, you know, in, in a matter of civil disobedience. He he wants to have his day in court and discuss how mutants and humans are the same. But you realize he's not in a lot of episodes that first season because he's in jail. Yeah, and because we hadn't been told that he was going to be a major character, but we kept on going back to him. And by the end of the first season, we couldn't imagine writing a story without him. Because he was so smart and so uh, eloquent and yet so distinctly uh, a mutant in a way that the rest of the team was not, you know, because he was big and blue and hairy and, and yet sort of the most at ease with his, what his mutation, which was the fun of the beauty and the beast story when he really is bumped up against it. So that, that kind of brings me to my next question, which is the, the show has such a, a definite tone and it, it matches the theme from the comic really, really well. Was there any pushback from executives at at the network for having such a serious minded show this ostensibly for for children, and how hard was it to talk about some of these larger issues you, you mentioned civil disobedience earlier, which you know I, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. we know a lot about that <laughs> especially so how what were the hurdles for for writing about that for children? I think uh, the 
we've been thinking about that a lot lately, just sort of you know, examining the show and remembering what it was like to, to do that. I think the, the, the key was, Eric, when you and Mark made the decision that in the first, it, it was not going to be mutant versus mutant of the week, you know, good mutant versus bad mutant, fight, 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 that it was going to be mutants against a world where there are humans who have real issues with them, are terrified of them because they're different, because they're other. And yet Xavier was going to hang his crew together and try and, you know, do the right thing by the humans who could, you know, hate them like the friends of humanity. And then you had Xavier, then you had Magneto, who had a legitimate beef, you know, <laughs> against yeah, humans. The humans were being treated very well, and he, he had another answer. And right. we were absolutely, from day one, the writers were, were referring to say, okay, Xavier is, Mal- is Martin Luther King and, and Magneto is Malcolm X. They each have an answer to the problem of racial problems in, in America and a certain group being the other and being being left out or oppressed or being feared or being suppressed. And so that was all very serious from the beginning. One of the executives, Sidney Iwater, who my God, this, he was the hands-on executive at Fox, mm-hmm. and we owe a lot to him because he just kept on telling us to make it more intense, yeah. you know, do more with it, do more, be it more adult. He, he, he was Margaret's kind of field general. She had to oversee the 10, ep- you know, the 10 series, but there were three or four series like X-Men and Batman and Spider-Man that Sidney, he oversaw every word of every script, and every image of every storyboard and every line that was delivered by the cast and mm-hmm. every you know every moment you know in the editing room this man didn't sleep and <laughs> and he just when we'd ask him he'd say push it harder and we said this thing about you know dealing with god he said i want to be more about god just you know take out wow. we had a, we had an action scene at the beginning of of the one with nightcrawler and and he said you don't need that. Get right to the problems with Nightcrawler and his faith. We had that support from him. There were lots of people you know, around us, obviously. There were other executives at Fox that were kind of were getting it. There were people at Marvel that thought it maybe should be younger and funnier. There were people, obviously, there, there were local affiliate stations like in Birmingham where yeah. the person was saying, well, what's this show I'm about to get from these crazy people in Hollywood that's got – you know that that isn't funny. That isn't you know that doesn't have a little cute dog in the middle of it. So we had affiliate people like that worried. We had advertisers saying, "Well, nobody's going to buy my cereal, my clothes, and my toys watching this grim thing." You know, come on, make it happier, make it lighter, do something. And we got a lot of that, as I say, for the six months while we were in production. And then fight when it came out and it was a huge hit, everybody shut up. I mean, it was just like, it was immediate. It's, it's the oldest Hollywood thing in the world where everybody loves success out here and everybody's now part of the success that is agreeing with your, all of your choices. But there are a lot of people that had a stake in this and you can't blame them for being worried about something that is so different from what had come before. If I can give a shout out here as we're looking back on things, I there there there's a there's a category of people in children's programming broadcast standards and practices. I'm casually called the censor, whatever, but every network had one or has one, and Fox Kids was no exception. 
And the woman who was broadcast standards and practices for Fox Kids was a gal named Avery Coburn. And she had, she, her word was God. She, she is the one who would, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on everything. And she is, she could have tanked the show from if she hadn't gotten what X-Men was trying to do, if she hadn't understood what Margaret Lesh was, was pushing for. And Lord, my two examples are when Eric was telling me that the pilot episode and the, the first Nightcrawler episode with the examination of religion, but the pilot episode, the decision that you and Mark made, this is to show the hero's journey, there has to be sacrifice. To have sacrifice or someone has to die. And that's how the morph story came to be. But I remember, <laughs> well, good luck calling Avery up and explaining you're going to kill somebody <laughs> on a kid's program. I still can't. I mean, I, I, I'm going back in time. And I remember that going, this is insane. You're never going to get that. But you got it. And yeah. that set the tone for the entire series. And that's a testament to her that she sat and listened and realized we weren't doing it. Uh, gratuitously that we were doing it to show what this meant for the rest of the team and to 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 share their grief and to show and to establish importantly in a show about superheroes that the stakes are real you know this 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 you know uh, it's not play it's not play action right you know that uh, you don't get to hit reset and everybody's fine the next week that there are consequences and it, it can go bad so the fact that we were allowed through Avery Coburn, who was in charge of broadcast standards and practices, to tell these stories, we we got to give her credit for Absolutely. being on board. Yeah, Absolutely. Julie, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because almost every time I hear standards and practices uh, as an entity being brought into the conversation, it's it's purely in the negative. Like, can you believe they wouldn't let me get away? <laughs> it, so it, it's it's awesome that y'all had somebody that was hip enough to kind of look into what you were doing. Yeah, and she liked she liked the books, and luckily she had some experience in, in prime time, so she was a little more used to looking at adult stories. And we we've dealt with many other people in broadcast standards for kids, and some of them just will just shut everything down, just nothing. Just, you just you know why bother to do the show? And we had that kind of in our corner. You know, look at the comic books we have on site. To if people had questions about the tone, look what they're doing. If you want us to do this, I mean, like, I've got a story about that. When I was at Hanna-Barbera, they, CBS bought a Popeye show, Popeye and Son. And a friend of mine from UT, John Loy, and I got to write on it. And the first thing that we were told by the network is Popeye and Bluto can't, can't hit each other. And it was the whole, <laughs> the whole reason for Popeye is that you know, these, these gruff sailors would be punched, beating the hell out of each other you know, every, every week, it just, we just, our jaws drop because we love the old 1930s Fleischer's Popeyes. They're very funny. And you just kind of want to stare at the network for people to why in the world did you pay for this? Why did you allow this? Why did you hire us to do this for you? If you're not going to do, if you're not going to respect the source material. So that was luckily Avery really respected the source material and, Boy, it was one of like 20 good bits of luck that came together for the show that allowed it to be what it could be. I do have an Avery story, though, that I like to tell. And it was um, <laughs> in, in season two, there was the through line in Savage Land yeah. where volcanoes and dinosaurs and, and weird, you know, jungle stuff everywhere. I loved um, that, that part of the series, by the way. <laughs> that was super fun. 
Oh, good. Well, uh, we found a memo somewhere where uh, it, stuff's happening. You know, people are fighting viciously. You know, uh, Wolverine doesn't, and and our people are there, and they don't have their mutant powers because of the magic of Savage Land. Horrible, huge fight going on, and a dinosaur. You know, is gets fall- knocked into a volcano. Yeah, it gets knocked into a volcano. Okay. That, that's happening, but that's not the point. And we just thought, okay, so the dinosaur's dead. Well, she, uh, the dinosaur's in the volcano. That's all we thought. Avery <laughs> 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 writes back and, to, and says, okay, um, you can have this fight. You can have that fight. You can have this. But, but I need to see the dinosaur climb out of the volcano a lot. <laughs> <laughs> to which the eye water is going, you understand dinosaurs don't exist anymore. And they've been extinct for that millions of years. And this is in a fantasy land. But he had to give in, and we had no, to. She wouldn't budge on. She wouldn't budge on that one. Because yeah. you know, the logic is, it's a character the kids are watching, and yeah. you've just seen the X Men fry it in a, in, in a volcano. volcano. So, <laughs> so there's no go on that. One. I mean, yeah. he fell in the volcano, but he got better. It's he, a, got better. he got better. He got better. He got better. He got better. <laughs> yep. So. Yep. When you we talked a little bit about it, but what what was the deciding factor for the characters that you you included on the show? You know, a lot of folks kind of get their fists all wound up and say, well, you know, why wasn't Kitty Pride part of this? And part of it wasn't just the timing. Jubilee had been introduced as a character, 89, 90, right, right around that, as well as Gambit. Yeah. Those two were newer members really of the brand team new. that Marvel you know, was keen on, you know, trying to reach a wider audience with. And, and yeah. She, she was one of the first like Asian characters yeah. yep. from a cartoon that I ever remember seeing, which is, that's pretty rad. I'm sure a lot of kids saw themselves for the first time, which is really cool. We do hear from people, and it, it's profoundly meaningful to hear that and realize what it did mean. Like the Storm was such a powerful character in our show, and and she being an African American woman or an African prince, God, yeah, goddess, I, African yeah, goddess. Yeah. So, so to, to to answer your question, there's a core, there's a core group, and the the problem was, you know, from a writing standpoint. In 22 minutes, you don't have a lot of space to tell in-depth stories about eight or nine people, plus guest <laughs> people, plus relatives. So we kept on trimming it down and trying to focus on two or three in each story. But as we set the main characters, we really picked, as I said, for for diversity, for distinctiveness, so that one would, you know, Jubilee isn't anything like Beast, who isn't anything like Gambit, who isn't anything like Wolverine. They're all so distinct. This is, a, this is a, we talk about this in writing, that there's some, there's some shows where everybody's pretty much the same. Whether you love or hate G.I. Joe, you, know, you got like, you got like eight, eight Joes and they're interchangeable. It makes it very hard to write stories because, you know, why have one person do anything different than another person? What is your theory, dear? Yeah, so the, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the, the awkwardly titled, when I, when I pitch shows to executives, because executives wouldn't understand this. They say, why are they all so different? Why are they all arguing so much? Why, why can't they all be the same? And so it was the poo sex theory. Yes. And it was my experience of like 30 years of watching television was the two best populated shows that, that I can remember were with, for this distinctiveness question, Winnie the Pooh, where everybody is so different. You couldn't imagine Eeyore saying an owl line, saying a piglet line, saying a Winnie the Pooh line. Yeah, they're, they're all, all defined. They're yes. all so well defined. Per, it's 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 perfect. It's like it's it's un, in, you couldn't do any better. And when 
when you know, 20, year, 20 years ago, very popular show that we used to watch was Sex in the, Sex in the City. And that the first thing everybody <laughs> said was, you got these four lead characters. They're completely different women from each other. Which one are you? Are you a carrier? Are you a whoever? Miranda. Or something yeah. Like that. So, so, so I, I try to throw those two things together for the executives so it would jog their minds a little bit, saying, if you had four carries, it would have been a dull show. If you had six Eeyores, it's going to be a dull show. You got to have, you know, the, the way to make successful television is to have distinct people as distinct as they can be from one another. They still love each other. They still have each other's back. They still, you know, would sacrifice for one another, but they are nothing like each other. That is, that's just good advice for writers all around. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's fantastic. As for the actual comics, do you do you keep up with any of the the current iterations of X Men? Is it is it kind of like seeing an ex girlfriend that you used to <laughs> <laughs> date a long time ago? Like, wow, you've changed. Well, we watched all the movies. Yes, yes, we've we've certainly kept up with all the films, and and the the whole comic book universe is there. There are so many. There are so many iterations. It's it's kind of a little hard to keep. I mean, let me let me back up with that one it's kind of a little hard to keep up with all the different iterations i'm aware but i'm not i'm not focused on it like i might have been and to be honest you know we know know that movies and comics have different demands than than animated television oh yeah and so we go into it with we we think of pretty open minds the challenge of some of the the movies is that they're basically we're redoing some of the same stories we were that we did so so we obviously we're, we're very aware of these characters and very aware of what they're trying to do. And some of the stuff is just amazing. Like just some of the casting, the production values and the idea of, you know, writing, writing dialogue for Patrick Stewart. Oh. Or, or, you know, <laughs> wow. I mean, it's just some of the stuff that they did with the movies was just awe-inspiring. There are things we, that obviously were human. We would say, Oh, well, I would have done that different. We did it different. Yeah, we did it different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it works. It's, and for some people, it's the definitive, version of that property well i like to think you know here we are look in the year 2020 and and you've got your billion dollar franchise but the team they came out with in 20 in in the year 2000 when they kicked it off with their very first x-men was basically our team team, but with rogue playing the role of jubilee in that it's like you know they had they had the exact same amount of people to choose from that 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 you and Mark did and Larry and Will, and they chose the same ones, <laughs> which I take as a, as a real point of pride. I have a few notes I've, I've written down as, as we've been talking. If it's all right with you, just a few more. And then I'd, I really want to talk to the talk about this book because oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. flipping gorgeous. Oh my goodness. So Julia on future tense. Yes. How was it writing such a, a show that was the premise of it was such a massive part of the comics. Uh, did you feel like you were kind of buried under the weight of this huge thing? How did you go about it? You know, if I told you no, would you believe <laughs> there was, this was one of the times when a certain amount of ignorance was bliss in that. Okay. Marvel was, was interested in seeing what we could do with this in the, in the, in the first 13. And again, those first 13 episodes, we each of us thought they were going to be the only episodes we did. 
So it was kind of like, you know, whatever happens, we're just, you know, each of us on the writing assignment, just, you know, we're, we've been given the, the marching orders to make this adult, do not write down to the kids, you know, treat this like a half hour live action drama, go for it. So having never had that kind of freedom before, and then also being told, okay, here's your story that, but, but, but yeah, but all these changes. Okay. So that, okay. There, there was a certain, there was just a, a, an enthusiasm of kind of just jumping in and, and messing around with it and doing it as, 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 as rock solid as, as, as I could, as well for anybody else writing on the show for that season. A certain giddy enthusiasm because it's like, yeah, we get to play. Yeah, we were we were really just focusing on. We we're so we're, we're excited to be able to be let write this stuff the way we always we always had wanted to write for for TV. And luckily, yeah, she's right. There's the benefit of of ignorance. We weren't aware what how much that story meant to the fans. So we just treated it as raw information. Like, mm-hmm. okay, how do how do we make this into the best? two-part TV show that we can make it and use everything we can from the, sh- the story and keep it, keep it obviously the same story. But you can't use Kitty Pride and she can't travel back mentally or spiritually. It yeah. needs to be someone physically yeah. going back, but it we, can't be her. But, 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 but <laughs> we, we decided, I, I, just, I just looked at it and said that there's something a little more realistic in the expectations of television versus, versus comic books and felt we needed somebody physically to move through time, not Kitty, not not a character's soul, which I thought might be a little bit difficult to get across. Tough to convey. Yeah, in animation. a lot of our, our, our not to not to diminish the ability of four and five and six year olds to get something like that, but it just it seemed simpler and cleaner and more TV friendly to have an actual physical person come back. So that was that was the big change, and Marvel was was happy with that. They were, as I say, they were supportive. Imagine that you're Bob Harris and you've got four X-Men titles that you're supervising every month, 70-hour-a-week job. And on top of that, you're reviewing what these strange people out in Hollywood are doing <laughs> with, with your characters. He had you know, limited hours to look over it. And I think he was just thrilled that we were serious about respecting the spirit of the books and that as far as important you know, certain details about from certain stories you say look i'm not even going to get into that but you guys are are doing it feels like you guys are doing this right so run with it was was kind of his his attitude and y'all left it all out on the field y'all really really threw down speaking of leaving it out on the field i apologize for the uh, awful, awful way that my team treated your volunteers. I thought I thought you were in Birmingham. Are you sure you're you're, you're not a war eagle? <laughs> no, I'm not, but I don't hate them. Don't hate oh, okay. them. You're <laughs> not going to poison their tree. No, no, God. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's 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 funny. You got, we this was a very southern show. Margaret Lash is is from Mississippi. Oh, really? Right, and she she moved out here. Julie's from Texas. The two main writers that work for me and I'm from Tennessee. We had two other writers on the show from Tennessee. So, oh, no, I'm sorry. One of them that did two episodes is, is from uh, Birmingham. Carter Crocker. He lives in Southern Tennessee right now, about 50 miles north of you. Oh, cool, cool. So, so it was a very 
it was a very southern staff uh, <laughs> as, as far as that went. That's awesome. So, real quick question: Since you got snapped up for for the X Men thing, do you feel that you have robbed the world from having the penultimate version of uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes cartoon? Uh, <laughs> I've never uh, considered that because you know, I'm sure we would have done a bang up job. And we know you, folks who ended up working on what that was. Richard Mueller oh, worked did. on Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Okay. Yeah, so it's funny how the world works out, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing an advert for it when I was a kid. I'm like that. That's a cartoon? How is that a cartoon? Because it would be on USA all the time when I was a kid, the the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. sure. And it, it, I just remember it was so silly. That Did you know that when they put you on this project, switching you over from the, the Killer Tomatoes, did, did you have any idea in your head that, oh, my gosh, this is going to blow up? Oh God, no. <laughs> no, no, we were just, we were just thrilled. We were thrilled to get the work because we just had a, just had our first baby. That's true. And we were thrilled to get, to get what was for me six months, six, seven months of work. And I got a script fee out of it. And she got a script fee out of it. And so that was the level of the initial excitement. Then we saw what a rich world it was and started getting the reaction from the people above us about how ambitious we could be with it. Mm-hmm. And that just made it, made it all grow. It's just like we started out pleased to be working and then say, Oh my God, this could actually be something really wonderful to be part of because we don't know. We've worked each worked on over 40 different projects, uh, you know, shows out here. And sometimes you get into them and they look okay at the beginning and you just realize you're not dealing with the right people or it's not what, you thought it was going to be or what you were promised and it could be a rough it could be a rough slog to get through the six months and take your paycheck but this one it's just every every time we came came up with another story and got more deeply into it and started and when the, we got the voices right and when we saw the artwork coming back at every stage of this when another element would come through we'd get more and more excited and we still didn't know it was going to be success correct we just knew that if it failed, we were gonna. It was gonna be a really exciting, honorable failure that we were really <laughs> proud of. Uh, you know, it was, it was gonna be something great to work on. But you know, you never know you in never Hollywood. Never know. You never know what's gonna be popular, what's gonna tank, because you you try to put out your best work in every in every job. But this one, it felt better and better and better as we pushed forward with it. So. All of this, you know, the, the first half of the, the interview or the first part of the interview has all focused on what amounts to the contents of the book that I'm holding in my hands right now. And when I opened the box that, that held this book, I gasped. <gasps> it is gorgeous. Not just, you know, the, the outside cover and all that, but you open up the inside. The, whoever designed the book for y'all just did a bang up job. We want um, to give a shout out Eric Klopfler at Abrams books, along yeah. with Liam Flanagan were the yeah. ones who yeah. Eric was our, our editor. And so, so he, he helped us structure the book and Liam was the guy that actually laid out the images. We dug up, we dug up everything. 98% of the images that you see, but they laid them all out. they, made the book look the way it did. We just, we wrote the text and we funneled them. 
the images we found, which were hard to find after yeah. 30 years. I was about to say, what Indiana Jones type warehouse did you pull the... Uh... Really? You're, you're not kidding. That's exactly what it was, only it was a lot smaller yeah. and a lot hotter. <laughs> that, that's, that's the nasty, nasty storage facilities. You know, basements and, and, and oh, over garages. Oh, attic, yeah, attics. And, yeah. And, and people just... And then we'd get lucky and we'd find something. Oh, boy, this is... Cause when we started out, I was I was really afraid. I mean, we could we knew we could tell the story, but we didn't know that we could find this beautiful stuff that would illustrate the story we were telling. And we did. And Marvel was real supportive with the beautiful Jim Lee stuff and the comic book covers and what all. And Abrams books found, you know, images of some of the merchandise that you know we had some of the merchandise ourselves, but and we had the the scripts and we had the, the storyboards, but some of the we stumbled upon a couple of artists that had been really you know anal about keeping every single thing they drew, and so we were able to get in effect the the designs, the character designs for just about every single character that ever had a line in any ep- that episode is there in the book. That that's the thing uh, we want to give a shout out to is that the realization here we are twenty five thirty years later with this. It shows you how much folks who worked on the show how much it meant to them individually that here we can go to Larry Houston, to Mark Lewis, to Dan Meyer, all these artists who thankfully maintained so much of this material. Cause oftentimes you don't, yeah. you know, you, and, you just get rid of it, but they, the, these the, guys didn't. And the, and the, the Frank, sad, uh, Frank Squalachi, Frank Brunner. Yeah. The, 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 the sad thing is, is we look at it now and we realize that these beautifully hand painted cells that oh. make up the episodes you know, are just really artwork, and they just used to throw it away because they didn't want to pay storage fees. It just again, this is 25, 30 years ago. The idea that it takes twenty thousand of these paintings, or oh so, my gosh, to, to make an episode, yeah, per episode. You know that that you go and that just about every one of them has been thrown away. It's yeah. just is a, is a real shame. Now nowadays, of course, everything's kept on computer files, and it'll last. And if we were to do a book about a show we were working on. 2020 it'd be it'd be simple you just go through all the beautiful images and pick and choose at your leisure but this was re- you're right this is a real treasure hunt and yeah we were not at all certain that when we started it out that we'd find what we needed but we really did and it really comes off as a labor of love the way y'all put everything together and it's it's fantastic my my five-year-old and I recently started watching the show on Disney Plus, and Aww. it holds up. Oh my goodness! Not a lot from back then. I tried. I recently tried to watch an old Jim Carrey movie <laughs> with my ten-year-old. Did not hold up. It was awful. Did not know what we were thinking back then. Because <laughs> yeah, but X Men: The Animated Series is solid. It's so solid. From from the first episode, it it really pulls you in, and it it I think it was kind of anomalous with in comparison to a lot of its contemporaries. Maybe Batman the Animated Series had kind of a similar impact, uh-huh. but well, that's a good looking show. Jeez, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you you were both no surprise on on the same network. Yeah, we we were we were kind of. Slightly, you know, can competing envious siblings. Yeah, they had bigger budgets. And they, <laughs> they looked more beautiful, but we had better ratings. And we we thought we had denser stories. 
and stories that carried over into the next episode and had consequences later on in the series, which is not something you would see on, on other shows. You know, Barney would always get his job back. Fred and Wilma would always, you know, <laughs> be the, the fun neighbors in, in this. You know, if, if somebody gets hurt, they, they, you know, stay hurt. They stay in jail. They stay dead for the most part. <laughs> One of my favorite kind of weird callbacks in a show that ran for 76 episodes is from Beauty and the Beast. Again, one of my personal favorites. But (laughs) you go back two seasons later, and I think it's during the Phoenix Saga. I'll have to go double check. But there's a moment where where Beast is at a computer at the keyboard, and on the keyboard is is a picture that says, Love Carly. It's signed as a shot of her. So like two seasons later, there's that. There's just that quick flash by. You know. You know. It's never called out. It's not a point of scene, but it's like, oh my god, those kind of moments to me were so rich and made the show give it so much depth. That that's amazing that y'all are able to do that. And I don't know, just that y'all are able to remember some of that stuff. <laughs> just the little aside things that happen. It's great. I'm sorry. I thought, I, did I interrupt you? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just flipping pages here as we're talking to you. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, this this book is fantastic. Where can people go and and get their own copy? Well, it's it's available, the the usual suspects like (laughs) at at Amazon, but it's also like Walmart and Target online. A a lot of... Barnes & Noble is available there. At at major bookstores or probably comic book stores. This 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 is a this is a pretty big publisher Abrams is and they've got good relationships with with places like that so you know support your local bookstore if you can yeah can can we give a shout out wherever you are if you have if you can you know give your local bookstore or your local comic book shop a, a phone call and see if they either if they have it or if they can get it for you just because th- this this year has been so hard on on so many industries and businesses and uh, if we can just do what we can. To, to try and help out your local, you know, support your local business. You know, if you can find one locally, do it that way. That'd be great. Do y'all have a particular shop in your area that you want to shout out while, while we're shouting out? I'll, I'll give a few here. We, we, in fact, we just did, Eric and I did a closed door day signing. It was us with uh, Dell and Sue out of a place called Dark Delicacies. That's in Burbank, well, uh, a famous uh, comic book horror pop culture shop. They're in Burbank, Dark Delicacies. They've got several copies that Eric and I got to sign. Yeah. And then we also have uh, a bookstore, a comic book shop, in another one uh, in the Burbank area called The Perky Nerd, who are just... Oh, Perky Nerd. I love them. They're super nice people. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you know them, and they've been very supportive. And then we've got a local children's bookshop called Once Upon a Time. Again, we're just trying to, you know... Find a way to get the yeah. book to people well, through these local businesses. And, yeah, and you'll be listening, and you'll you'll have your favorite store in Birmingham, and they'll yeah. they'll probably have it because it's just it's it's just it's just thrilling to us that that the man's still there, and that the people your age are passing it on to the next generation. We see that a lot at cons. It's wonderful. We'll get a forty year old fan that was just crazy about it in nineteen ninety two with their ten year old. In, in tow and say, well, we just watched the whole thing together. Or someone said, I watched it with my grandparents when I was little, and now I'm watching it with my <laughs> yeah. kids. You know, it's like, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, so it, that that's just that makes us feel feel incredibly grateful to have been uh, been part of it because we, we just we're just we sit at home writing these scripts, and there's it's not like you're a performing artist and you know that you've made a connection 
to your audience. When you done when we're done with the stories, you know, we're on to the next job. And it's only at places doing podcasts like podcasts with you or at cons where we get a sense that this has reached out into the world and touched a lot of people. And nearly 30 years later, still going strong. I, I started watching the show with my kid while I was on break at work for COVID. And oh. then I had planned to watch the rest of it with her. And I had to, ended up having to go back to work and she binged it without me. The little turd. <laughs> <laughs> That's a spirit. <laughs> so, it, so yeah, she she totally dug it. It still holds up. This oh, book uh, again, X Men: The Art and Making of the Animated Series by Eric and Julia Leewald. Fantastic work. I, I can't so thank you all both enough for for coming on and talking about it. Is there anything else y'all want to bring up while we're while we're here? Well, if you could find us, have folks find us. I'm on Twitter way too much and. We are there as X-Men TAS, which is for X-Men, the animated series. We're there. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. X-Men TAS. Come find us, please. And, and you could maybe dig around and find out how come Auburn has three names? How come they're the Tigers, War Eagle, and the Plainsman? <laughs> that's just overkill. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a name too far right yeah, there. Yep. Yeah. We... we we have a lot of identity crisis in, in Alabama. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're, our, our mascot at, at Alabama is an elephant, and yet we're also the Crimson Tide. So, but. Yeah, we, we are. And, but you mentioned Disney Plus. Want to give them a shout out because that has opened the door to a whole new group of people who right. didn't get a chance to watch X-Men before because it just wasn't available. Yeah. So the fact that it's now. It's all there is so cool. Yeah, it's just yeah. amazing to us that and, that's happening. And, and on, when we were when we were doing the book, we we actually we had Disney Plus up on the computer, you know, reference points. So, the, you know, do I remember that moment exactly? You know, what was it they said what the, we wrote there? So it was we were using it. Yeah, you know, towards the end of the the making of the book, we were using it a lot. Well, my my kids, I think my kids both connected to it because they had never really been confronted with a show that talked to them on that level before uh-huh. because right. the, the five-year-old it has only really seen, you know, like her kid shows and they seem to be much more like kind of talking down yeah. and it's, it's funny animals and stuff like that. And this is, this has consequences. This is, you know, has some dire things that happen yeah. uh, and yet yeah. it's still very entertaining. And so for that reason, it's, I think it's connected with people really well. well so thank you so much for that. We yeah. so appreciate hearing that. Thank y'all again for coming on the show. If y'all ever want to come back, uh-huh. please give us a holler. Um, <laughs> and I hope y'all stay safe. Oh, thank and you. It's starting to, starting to cool down. I hope it's, it's nice there and I hope y'all enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks for much appreciated. Having us on. All right, y'all have a good one now. And we're back. That was cool, man. Yeah, sounds like a good time. Yeah, man, it was great. They were so cool. Um, I would love to have them on again just to pick their brains. Uh, they, so I didn't do video. Um, and uh but they had their video on and 
every now and then I would ask a question and I would see Julia look over at, uh, at Eric and kind of like nudge him like, Oh yeah, he's asking a good one. And I'm like, yeah, got him on my side. <laughs> you know, that's something that we do really well here at Twitter countries. We ask questions that get people, the people we talk to that I don't think other people ask him before. Like, uh, Jeff, the get Haas, he talked with, um, uh, some people, uh, can, I, I'm, I'm, the name on my head of the, who he talked to is Jupiter Jet, the writers of Jupiter Jet. And at the end of the interview, they're like, man, th- they thanked him for not asking the same five questions they always get asked. <laughs> and I feel like when people come on our show, we sometimes we ask the same questions that you know people ask, obviously. But I think in general, the questions that we ask, all of us as a group, you, uh, Kenrick, myself, Jeff, Melissa, all of us, we ask, we ask thoughtful, insightful questions, right? Questions that we want to know. We don't really ask questions that everybody else thinks of we ask questions that we want to know the answers to because we care because you know all of us have been interviewed for stuff before and we know how boring it gets being asked the same question over and over again jeff really puts a ton of research into his questions i'm just dumb enough to be unique occasionally <laughs> so but jeff really really put some time into it yeah if we're being honest jeff and, does more research than anybody on our show yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he comes prepared. So um, I, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, like I said, I, I really enjoyed talking to them. Yeah, it sounded like it. I mean, if they ever want to come back on, so if you ever want to come back on, Eric and Julia, just just let us know. We'll happily have you come back on and chat more about X-Men or about whatever else you're doing out there. And, um, you know, if you did enjoy that and enjoy, you know, Casey talking to people, we have a ton of more. Actually, I think, Casey, I think you've, you're up to almost like in the 75 to 100 range of interviews you've done now or episodes you've been on at least. It's, there's so many. I need to do the count because there's, there's a lot. But if you like those <laughs> out there listening, you know, go over to spoilerverse.com or go to any podcatcher and check them out. Check out all of the back issues that are up there. There's a ton. And you can hear our show. You can hear all the other shows on our network, like Bridging the Geekdoms, or if you want to hear Robert talk about Snyder Cut. Um, and then he's doing other stuff now, but it's a lot of Snyder Cut up there. Or if you want to go to Funny Book Forensics, who uh, Dan over at Funny Book Forensics, he actually supplies us with questions for some of our in-depth interviews, like our Paul Levitz one, which just went live yesterday. Uh, Dan actually wrote that was a great a, interview. Yeah, Dan wrote a lot of those questions, those those in in deep in-depth questions about his career. Uh, Dan came up with so go check out Funny Book Forensics because they do a lot of really good deep dives into comics and stories and where things came from. And it's it's definitely it is comic book forensics. Where, you know, it really what it is. We call it a funny book because it's funnier that way. <laughs> And when you go over at Swearers.com and you listen to other podcasts, check out all of our articles and our reviews and our previews and everything else we post up there. We have lots of writers up there that do so much cool stuff. So go up there, read their shit, and comment because it's awesome. Also, click on the store link. Go buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or a face mask or whatever. Look fly as hell. Help support the site. Go to scpod.us slash discord and join our public discord server. Uh, come sit and chat with us. We're going to be doing some cool giveaways and contests over there. So you definitely want to go to scpod.us slash discord and join our discord server. In case you know what, there's just one more thing we got to do. Open your mind? Yeah. You gotta open your mind and read more. Have a moon pie, y'all. Yeah, and, and moon pie here wants to eat more moon pie, so do that. Yeah. <laughs>